You're listening to audio from Citizens Church, located in Plano, Texas. For more information about this ministry or to give to this ministry, please visit citizenschurch.com. All right. Good morning, church family. How are you guys doing? It's good to be here with you again this morning. It's always great to be in God's house and get to worship with you guys. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, my name is John Hall. I am uh, one of the lay elders here at Citizens Church. And uh, it is always uh, a good thing to be in God's house, to be able to worship. So uh, this morning, uh, before I begin, I'm going to be in Matthew 9. Uh, you just heard Melissa read that passage, and so that's where we're going to be. But before I begin, there's something that I would like to share with you uh, on behalf of the elders. So before I begin the sermon, I have something uh, that I'm going to dig into. I would like to bring you into some conversations the elders of Citizens Church have been having and ultimately ask you to pray with us as we seek the Lord's direction. So speaking on behalf of the elders, we have a desire to see missions be one of the most important facets of our church. Missions is often discussed as a key piece of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus, but it is not very common to be given clear direction on how that should be carried out. And so the elders want to see this changed for Citizens Church. So the elders see it's important, and we want to see a mission strategy implemented that will serve our church well, that will serve the kingdom of God well, and that will bring honor and glory to King Jesus. So in an effort to be clear about what I mean by missions, uh, we would define that as fulfilling the commission that Jesus gave his disciples by preaching the gospel to every nation in order to make disciples of every nation, baptizing them in his name, and therefore bringing forth the kingdom of Jesus Christ into the lost world. And that includes both the nations all over the world and the individuals that you interact with on a daily basis right where you are. So before I can just lay out what we intend to do in missions, I want you to understand where we've been. I want you, uh, if you will, to take a journey or an odyssey uh, that the elders of Citizens Church have been on for the first year of this church. We rolled off last year on August 1st unto uh, a somewhat delicate and sad situation. If you have no idea what I'm talking about, we'd be glad to explain that to you after the service. But that situation involved the dismissal of a member of our church staff who was also an elder that oversaw missions and mobilization. This meant at that time that there was now a void left in the leadership and vision in that particular area in our church because we had previously been involved uh, with taking steps toward a church's mission strategy. Ross Norman, one of our elders here, myself, asked if we could step in. And we asked if we could step in in an effort to both help cast vision for where the Lord may lead us as a church while simultaneously wanting to see it continue to progress as our church walked through such a challenging season. So in early August of last year, Ross and I began to explore exactly where our church was in terms of mission. And what we realized was that naturally we had inherited a system, philosophy, and strategy of mission from our former parent church. It was built on faithfulness and a desire to honor the Lord and a number of great things. But what we really needed to do was back up and begin at square one and ask, what would the Lord have us to do at Citizens Church? And we wanted to be sure that there was a clear overarching strategy uh, in place in terms for missions for our people. And it's not enough to say, this is what we've done in the past, so that should be good enough. And that's not to cast stones or to criticize about what had been done in the past. It simply means that we were starting from square one. And that left us with a dilemma. We could go one of two paths. Option number one was this. We could simply maintain the status quo of citizens until we could get someone in that place permanently to manage missions at our church. And this would likely be a hire for the mobilization staff position. 
And that would mean continuing with missions in the way that had matched our inherited idea of reaching the lost and the nations. But in doing so, we would be postponing the development of a convictional mission strategy for Citizens Church until we hired someone to take us through that process. And for several reasons, we didn't like that option. It would, one, postpone what we felt was a more urgent need in the life of our church. Uh, Two, it would place a tremendous amount of pressure on one individual to walk into a new ministry environment and then have to have the pressure of taking us through developing a mission strategy. And most importantly, it would remove the formulation of that mission strategy from the elders. We feel that it is part of our responsibility to shepherd this church by leading out in missions. And so that left us with option number two. And so Ross and I would lay the groundwork for formulating a mission strategy and a vision for citizens in agreement with the other elders. And as daunting and intimidating as that seemed for all of us, that was the direction in which we headed. And so from the very beginning, as Ross and I began to meet and began to talk about this, we had agreement about several key things. One, there was no need to reinvent the wheel. Okay, there are churches out there that are doing missions really well. And so we had conversations with some of those people around this topic to see how they did missions. And in many ways, we wanted to emulate the ways that they executed mission wells. In particular, as we alluded to before from our former parent church, Trevor Joy and the Village Church was a tremendous help and a resource as they graciously shared their expertise with us. And so we're so grateful to them and thankful for them for doing that with us. We also uh, desired to see missions become part of our church culture. We want it to become basically the air we breathe as a church, and it's just something that we do here at Citizens Church. When people speak of citizens, our hope is that the word missions won't be far behind uh, in that conversation. We also wanted the on-ramps to be very clear, very easy to find for people who want to be involved in missions on any level, and that every member of Citizens Church would convictionally identify themselves as a missionary. Now, here's what that means and here's what that doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that everyone's going to go sell their possessions, move to the other side of the world, and serve as a missionary that way. But just to put all our cards on the table, for those of you in this room or for those of you who are listening online, our prayer is that that would be some of you. But it would mean all of us in this church, everyone would have become an explicit gospel carrier to their circle of influence. That missions would be the endeavor of the entire church, not just a select few who are called out to go to the nations. And when the church finally does hire a person to fill the mobilization position, that that person would be stepping into an imperfect yet flexible mission strategy that's going to need to be tweaked from time to time. But yet it would also be one that the elders have a deep conviction about. And from day one, that individual could step into that position and they could hit the ground running, executing a strategy that has been thought through, prayed through, fasted through. And one that enables us to share the gospel and make disciples from Plano throughout Collin County and even to the ends of the earth. So over the course of the last year, all of the elders have a new respect for what it means to develop a mission strategy. For me personally, this experience has been humbling. And at the same time, it's created in me a deeper affection for you, Citizens Church. I'm sure Ross would share the same as we have dreamed, we've prayed, we've thought about what God is going to do in the lives of some of our people and how that will impact the gospel being carried forth into the city and to the world. And while the Lord has been gracious to us to bring us clarity around many of these things, there is still work to be done. Ross and I have a number of discussions with many of people. We've dreamed, we've talked, we've prayed, we continue to ask the Lord, what would you have us to do as a church? So I wanted to share with you something very specific for us as a church as a way that you can pray and join with us and the elders as we continue to seek the Lord's direction here. 
we're at a key stage where the elders will be sitting down together to dedicate time to think, discuss, and pray through the convictions we have around missions. And this meeting will take place on August 20th. There are two things that we pray will come out of this meeting on August 20th. The first thing is to answer a question, and that question is this. How is the Lord calling Citizens Church to specifically engage our local context and also the lost in the world? In other words, what is the specific role of Citizens Church in the Great Commission? It's easy to operate under a general consensus that missions is good, so we should do it. Without answering the who, the what, the where, the why, and the how. So that it makes it, without answering those questions, it will be impossible to formulate an effective and what we believe will be a God-honoring mission strategy with conviction. And so once we've answered the specific role that Citizens Church has in the Great Commission, then we can build a framework and a strategy around those convictions. And this will allow us to determine how we're going to engage in missions at Citizens Church. So before the sermon has even begun, I've already have an ask of you, the church body. Would you pray with us? And would you pray for the elders as we meet on August 20th to discuss these important matters around how the Lord would lead us to obey his commands towards mission? Would you pray for God's wisdom? The elders would have both a clarity and a unity around these issues. We believe that the Lord wants to use you, the people of Citizens Church, to further his kingdom on earth as we await his return. We want to ask him to use you in a great way to bring a message of hope to the lost and dying world, which includes those that live in a world away that have no access to the gospel, that have never heard the name of Jesus, have no Bible in their native tongue, and which also includes your neighbor, your co-worker, the barista you see every day, your friends, your family, and the foreigner who has sought a new life in our city. May God use the people of Citizens Church in a mighty way to bring forth his kingdom on earth by opening their eyes to his mercy, his grace, and forgiveness. May he allow us to play a role in the great story of redemption as the kingdom of darkness loses ground, as lost souls turn to the one true God. And so we thank you ahead of time for joining us in praying about these matters. And so at this time, we're going to switch over and we're going to go to Matthew chapter 9. And so I just uh, I want to thank you for uh, being a church that is behind us in these types of endeavors and missions is really a critical and an important thing. And so we thank you ahead of time for praying with us about these particular things. Missions is uh, one of those things that gets me fired up and it, uh, it just is kind of one of those things that's always driven me. I believe it's a beautiful endeavor. It's beautiful because it's the actual practice of everything that is great about God and his gospel. I think it's beautiful because it challenges the church in very unique ways. And I believe it's beautiful because it refuses to allow the church to be passive about the gospel and the need for it in the world. And so it's a beautiful thing, but it's not only a beautiful thing, there's a joy in missions that comes with it as well. And part of that is because mission involves the totality of what church life is really about. So there's this worship aspect to missions, is that we participate in missions because God is great and because he's worth whatever the cost may be. There's also this ministry aspect to it is that we get to serve our neighbors, we get to serve others, we even get to serve the nations in ways that meet their deepest needs, and we get to go meet those things. And there's a heart aspect to it, to feel genuine love for those who may not feel the same towards you. The choice is made to love them anyway in the hope that they would become part of our eternal family, that someday we could call them brothers and sisters in Christ for all of eternity. And then there's what I call the reality aspect to it. It's one thing to pray for a picture of a family that's hanging on your refrigerator. 
it's quite another thing to be open-handed with your life and to go to your neighbors, your co-workers, your family members, or even halfway around the world because God has called you to do that. And so in all of that, here's my hope for our time together, that we would hear the calling of God on your life and you would take the gospel to those in need of it. And I don't believe that guilt or shame or any other form of spiritual manipulation is needed to help you see the need for missions, okay? This, this sermon, I want you to hear me say this. This sermon is not about making you feel guilty or feeling shame for not going and doing these things, okay? That's not my intent at all. But what I'm hoping we'll do is as a church, we'll take a spiritual step up together to see the necessity for these things. So the Holy Spirit, he doesn't need my help to convince you of the need for missions. What all of us need is to hear the clear teaching of Scripture on the matter and then respond appropriately. And so what does Scripture have to say about the missions? So before we jump into our passage today, let's do this. Let's take a look at Romans 15. Romans 15, 20 and 21 says this, And thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation, but as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. And so this is Paul writing to the church in Rome, and he's basically saying that I, my strategy is this. And while Paul would stick to the Roman roads, and while he would go to large uh, centers of populations like cities and those kinds of things, and that's very true, what he wanted to really do is he wanted to go to places where Christ had never been proclaimed. And so to use a John Piper term, that's what they call frontier missions. It's going to places where Jesus has not been proclaimed. And we do that for a reason. There's very specific reasons for that. And I, I take a look at Re Revelation chapter 7, 9 through 12, and this really gets me fired up when it comes to missions because I think about someday as we stand before the throne and ultimately we celebrate for all of eternity. This is what scripture has to say. And after this, I looked and behold a great number that no one could number a great multitude that no one can number praise God for that listen to this description of this crowd from every nation from all tribes and peoples and languages it's four things used to describe every nation all tribes peoples languages standing before the throne before the lamb clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb and all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. And they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. So out of that passage, I want you to notice something. The description of the great multitude that was standing before the throne of God and the Lamb. They were too great to be numbered, and they were from every nation, tribe, people, and languages. So there's four things used there to describe the crowd. That description has to mean more than people from just a distinct geopolitical boundary. So it has to mean more than people from Mongolia or Japan or the Democratic Republic of the Congo, those types of things. The, the description has to be broader. And so as we talk about missions, there's a lot of terms that get thrown away, around, and there's a lot of terms that get invented. And one of the ones today is unreached people groups. And these are hard to define exactly, but they get closer to talking about what's described in Revelation chapter 7. And within those geopolitical countries are people from thousands of different tribes, castes, subcultures, languages who have never heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. And they have no 
active Christian work going on within their area. Sure, there's sporadic pockets of believers in these places, but if someone from the outside doesn't come and help out, those places will never be reached for the gospel. And so the church must find ways to cooperate in their efforts and resources to reach these particular people groups. So uh, today we speak of, of reaching people within these distinct people groups rather than reaching entire nations for very specific reasons. Uh, just to give you an example, here's some statistics about the nation of India, where an organization I work with called Aim for India Works. And so I got these statistics from the joshuaproject.net if you wanna go and look at these. But the population of the country of India, it's staggering. It's 1.37 billion people, almost 1.4 billion people. That means one out of every seven persons walking the face of the earth today is Indian. 96%, 96% of the nation is unreached. That doesn't mean they're just lost. It means there is no active Christian work going on within the nation of India for 96% of the population. That is incredible. The number of total people groups within that nation is 2,716, just a little over 2,700. Of those people groups, 2,443 are unreached. Roughly 90% of the people groups in India have no active Christian work going on in them. 81% of the population identifies as Hindu. Only 2% of that nation is Christian. In the area where my organization works, it is less than 1%. It's staggering when you take a look at statistics like that. I mentioned a few minutes ago that, there are part, that part of my hope for our time together would be that the Holy Spirit would convince you of the need for missions and that you would respond appropriately. And so my hope is that God would have his way with your heart. So let's take a look at Matthew 9 together. We have a story about Jesus that reminds us of several aspects of what it means to live on mission. And so Jesus declared over and over and over again throughout the gospels that he was on a mission, that he was here to do the will of his father and that his father was directing him towards all of the actions that he took. And so he, came, he said he came to seek and to save that which was lost. And so here he is doing his father's work. And so as we take a look at verse 35, I want us to take a look at the ministry of the sent. I've said this before, I'll say it again, that most of God's business is transacted on the other side of people who are obedient to him, people that are sent and went, if you will. And so verse 35 is known as a summary statement. It basically sums up the ministry of Jesus. And, and listen to me, if, if these are the things that were important to Jesus, these ought to be things that are important to us, shouldn't it be? And so then these things should take precedence in our lives. And so these are the things we should be about. And so the missionary life is about three things. Look at verse 35. It says, Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction. And so there's three things that Jesus was about. He was about teaching. He was about proclaiming. He was about healing. So let's take a look at all three of these. Let's take a look at teaching first. When we hear the word teaching, what do we think of? We think of basically what I'm doing, a guy standing behind a podium and he's giving out or she's giving out information uh, to a crowd at large. And so it's about the acquisition of knowledge. And so that's what we think about when we hear the word teaching. But I want to say to you, it's something broader than that. We have to think of it in broader terms. So one of the things is that it assumes we know God's word. I think one of the greatest problems that we have in the American church today is biblical illiteracy. It means people who claim to know Jesus don't bother reading his word. And listen, man, that cannot be. It just cannot be. If you're going to be about missions and you're going to be 
uh, strongly behind missions, then it has to be a found, from a foundation of God's word. And so it assumes that along with the knowledge of God's word, because we've spent time in it, that we know how to apply these things to our lives. And so we know how to take these things out of God's word and make those things real within our lives. And then it also assumes with along, along with a proper application of the word that there is an accountability piece to it. That there's godly, biblically driven relationships with other believers. And so all of these things are assumed in the word teaching. In other words, teaching does not lead to the acquisition of knowledge alone. It's not just about learning things. Teaching leads to the changing of lives and hearts. It's part of the mission in making disciples. And so then knowing scripture has to be imperative to missions. If we're to go to the nations and to make disciples of them, how can we do that if we don't know God's word? And so that has to be imperative to what we do. And so we have to come to a place where teaching is just part of our lifestyle. The second part of this is also proclaiming. A proclamation in the first century was basically a majestic heralding. It was the message of a king. And so basically when someone would show up, a messenger from the king, everybody would stop what they were doing. And he's like, I've got an announcement from the king. And so life would just stop and they would listen to this. It demanded attention. This was no ordinary announcement. And so here is the message that Jesus is proclaiming, the gospel of the kingdom. So he went around proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. It is good news. And God was bringing to completion in the person of Jesus what was begun in the Old Testament after Genesis 3. And what he began in a prophecy in Genesis 3 and continued in Abraham, and he displayed it spectacularly in the Exodus and continued in the fulfillment of his promise to give Israel the designated land that he had promised to Abraham and his preserving them from attacks from multiple nations and even from their own destructive sin, which ultimately led to their captivity in Babylon, was now being fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. And he was declaring in a bold and a beautiful way that the kingdom of God was now present in his appearing and the eternal reign of the king of kings was underway. And listen to me, people. Church, we still have the responsibility today to carry this beautiful proclamation to the world that it is the gospel of Jesus Christ and it is the gospel of the kingdom that we have to carry forth and using that to make disciples. And he wasn't just about teaching, he wasn't just about proclaiming, but he was also about healing. Here's a beautiful and a good thing that I think has been wrecked by our fear surrounding charismatic type of abuses of the gift of healing. And so I'd love to see this term reclaimed for the beautiful God thing that it is. It describes Jesus' healing ministry as that of every disease, which meant that there were physical healings that he was doing and afflictions, which would be things like demon possessions, injustices, addictions, and general damage and destruction that was brought on by sin. So let's take those one at a time. Let's talk about physical healing. Does God still physically heal people? Absolutely. Yes, he does. He does incredible things all over the world to bring glory to himself and to point people to him. And uh, so I just want to use an example that I know of from the nation of India. I knew of a couple who were Hindu, and they had been married uh, for approximately eight years, and they desired to have children. They were unable to have children. And so they went around from temple to temple to temple invoking gods and goddesses and priests to help them in this endeavor. And for eight years, nothing worked. And they were frustrated. And they were just devastated because in their culture, it carries more than the inability to have children. There's aspects to it that bring shame and guilt into that. And so it, it put just kind of this stigma on this one couple. And so one Sunday, 
they were up and they heard down the street a church that was singing praises to God. And the man looked at his wife and he said, what do we have to lose? And so they went down to the church and not knowing how this worked, they interrupted the service and they walked in and they explained, we don't know how this works. They explained their situation and they said, is there anything your God can do to help us? And that church gathered around that couple. They laid hands on them. They prayed for them. They cried out to God that he would give them a baby. And a month later, she was pregnant. And they came back to that church and they declared, none of the Hindu gods could do anything for us. Your God is all powerful. We'll worship him. And they gave their lives to Jesus. Just an amazing thing that that happens. So physical healing does happen. It's something that, that carries on around the world to bring glory to God. Affliction healing. Does God enter into the fray of people damaged by demonic and sinful influences? Absolutely he does. He is still at work doing that today. Back to India. One of the times that I was actually there, I was uh, at an event that was outside, and in their culture, it's kind of a, a taboo thing for Hindus to join Christians who are doing things, and so they would keep their distance. They would sit on the roofs, they would sit on walls, they would peek out around uh, fences and walls there, but you knew that they were there. You knew that they were hearing what was going on. They were hearing us worship God and praising Him. The gospel was being declared. And afterwards, there would be a few that would always come up, and they were in really desperate situations, and they would ask us to pray for them. And I remember one particular time, this family approached me, and they were making a beeline for me. And so when I say a family, it meant mom and dad and a little boy who was, looked like a toddler, probably two, three years old. It was aunt and uncle. It was granddad and grandmother. It was the whole group, and they came right for me. And this man had this toddler on his shoulder. It was, the, the child was asleep. And so he went to hand me the child. It was like I was going to take the child. He didn't ask me. And if I didn't take the child, he was going to drop it. So I, I caught that little baby boy, and I'm holding him in my arms, and then he steps away. And when I say they stepped away, they're probably like six, eight feet from me. And I'm like, no, 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 no. I'm not taking your kid. I'm like, I, I've got plenty, okay? Uh, you're you're going to take this child back home with you. And so I'm speaking in English. He's rattling off something in Telugu. We're not communicating. Okay, this is not going well. And so I called for a translator. The translator finally came over and began to talk with the father. And then he relayed to me, the child that you're holding in your hand is demon-possessed. And I could tell by the looks on their face after they said that, the entire family was terrified of this child. And so, Lord, I said, first thing, please let him sleep. Second thing, okay, is please deliver him from this demon. And so we gathered around this child, laid hands on him, began to pray that God would deliver that child from the demonic influences that had been brought on him. And so as we prayed, we spent minutes 30 minutes probably praying for that child, and then we gave the child back to the family, and they went back to their home. And to this day, I have no idea what happened in that. But I do know that God is faithful to deliver people from oppressions and things like that, and so afflictions that go on. And so I see people when I go to India that are ravaged by the afflictions of addiction, usually comes out in the form of alcoholism, by idolatry that comes from Hinduism, and so you have demonic influences that come from that, injustices that go on from slavery, human trafficking, human rights issues, all of these things take place in India. But I want to share something with you that doesn't just happen in India, it happens here. God is at work in this place, healing people from the afflictions that have been brought on by their lives. And so we have a responsibility. The reason that we carry forward the gospel of the kingdom of God is because God does these things. He uses the gospel to do amazing things in people's lives. And so if that's what Jesus was about, that's what we should be about.
And so what is the motivation of the missionary life? It has to be this. It has to be compassion. The Bible says that when Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion for them. Why did he have compassion for them? Because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. That term, harassed and helpless, it means to be torn down and thrown down. It's a term that's used for prey who is about to be devoured by a predator like a sheep without a shepherd. And so what Jesus, what was killing him is there was no one providing spiritual guidance for these people as he looked at them. There was no one helping. There was no one there to stand in the gap for all of these people. And, and this is something that is just, it's gnawing at Jesus. So he saw the crowd. He had compassion for them. See, God taught me something in traveling to India that I, as an individual, I needed to take a step back and I needed to see a bigger picture about life. The reality is this, the Indian government is oppressive and it actively tries to expel Christianity and other religions from the country. But I want you to understand something and I wanna be very crystal clear about this. The Indian government is not my enemy. Hindus in the nation of India when they feel threatened, they will beat, humiliate, marginalize, and even kill Christians who proclaim that Jesus alone is God and the only means of salvation. But I want you to understand something. I want to be very clear about this. The Hindus are not my enemy. They're not. On the way to India, I usually travel through the United Arab Emirates. This, like most countries in the Middle East, are run by Muslims and a Muslim government. And I was here for 9-11. I have a son who's in the U.S. Army. And I want you to hear something very clearly. The Muslims are not my enemy. They're just not. My enemy is not flesh and blood, according to Ephesians 6. My enemy is what lies behind the attitudes, the mindsets, and the spiritual blindness of those individuals. Those who are blinded by such things are worthy of my love and my compassion. They're worthy for me to look at them with the eyes gifted to me from the Holy Spirit and see they are harassed and they are helpless. And the only thing that can save them is the gospel of the kingdom of God. Frederick Bruchner wrote a book called The Magnificent Defeat. And in this book, he says this, the love for equals is a human thing, a friend for friend, brother for brother. It is to love what is loving and lovely, and at this the world smiles. The love for the less fortunate is a beautiful thing. The love for those who suffer, for those who are poor, the sick, the failures, the unlovely. This is compassion, and it touches the heart of the world. The love for the more fortunate, that's a rare thing. To love those who succeed where we fail. To, to rejoice without envy with those who rejoice. The love of the poor for the rich. Of the black man for the white man. The world is always bewildered by its saints. And then there's the love for the enemy. The love for the one who does not love, but mocks you, threatens, and inflicts pain. The tortured's love for the torturer. This is God's love, and it conquers the world. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him in whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news of the gospel. See, Jesus is about to make a shocking declaration in our passage. And here is the shocking declaration that he makes. 
The harvest is plentiful. The harvest is plentiful. In his day and time, the resounding response to that declaration would have been, what? These people? The harassed? The helpless? The nobodies of society? This is the plentiful harvest? This is what we're talking about? So in our day, when it comes to people that we think about being part of a church, do we not desire the people who seemingly have it all together? And I say seemingly have it all together because nobody has it all together, right? Seemingly have it all together. I mean, the picture family, they have the beautiful kids, they have all of these things, they know their Bible, they tithe. There's obviously nothing wrong with any of those things. But this is not what Jesus is saying in verse 37. He's saying the harvest is plentiful. It's a term he's using to say that all of these harassed and helpless, all of these people who are out here are hurting in need of healing in a, in a terrible way are ripe to hear the gospel and become citizens of the kingdom. The one who controls the crops, the weather, and the harvest desires all of these to be his own. And we get to be part of that. You see, the desire to do two-thirds of the ministry, what I mean by that is the, the desire to teach them and the desire to proclaim the gospel without the desire to want to provide healing is sinful. And when we romanticize missions and ministry without the need to get our hands dirty, that's crazy because this will never be the case. Doing kingdom work is messy, messy business. We must always consider this when we count the cost of serving King Jesus. And so along with what Jesus said, he makes this shocking declaration, the harvest is plentiful. Jesus is also going to describe the problem. Well, the crop is ripe, it's ready to be harvested. The laborers are few. There are few willing to go into this crop and work. There are few willing to go to see the harassed and helpless for what they are. There are few willing to see with eyes gifted by the Holy Spirit, to see with compassion those who may not feel the same towards you. There's simply not enough willing to do the work of the kingdom for the size of the task at hand. There's a need for more of what Paul described in Romans 10, beautiful feet who are willing to carry the gospel to the ends of the earth. We just don't have enough people for the task at hand. So he's declared this shocking thing. He's described for us the problem, and now he's going to share the solution. And here's the solution, and this solution has always blown me away. It has intrigued me. This is what his solution is. Pray earnestly. Pray fervently. Pray, pray, pray. When you get tired of praying, pray some more to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. See, this is one of those prayers and even commands to pray in Scripture that always just blows me away, intrigues me, and it intrigues me for several reasons. The focus of the prayer is not where I would have gone. It's not the direction I would have prayed. Now, I would have prayed for the harassed and helpless, that they might be saved. They might come to know Christ as Savior. But Jesus doesn't do that. The focus of his prayer is that God would raise up laborers to be sent out to the harassed and the helpless. And that's what he's commanding us to pray. Look at the theology taught in this call to prayer. There is a plentiful harvest, and that didn't happen by chance. And the Lord of the harvest controls the bounty of the harvest, what happens to the harvest. And in this mind-blowing truth, he is actively looking for people to include in the joy of service to himself. He is actively looking for people to join him in the field. And those people will see God in a way that few others will ever have the opportunity. And that prayer doesn't end until Jesus returns. It is still being prayed and it is still being answered even in our day. And we are commanded still to pray in this way. 
And so all of this, man, all of this, Jesus was about teaching. He was about proclaiming. He was about healing. He looked at people with compassion. He pointed out to his disciples and he said, man, there's this plentiful, beautiful harvest out there. And there's just not enough people to go bring in the harvest. Pray to God that he would raise up more people to go out to it. In light of all of that, as we think about that, this is where the big questions of life get asked. Will you do what Jesus has commanded us to do? Will you actively pray? Will you pray earnestly? Will you pray actively? Will you pray consistently that God would raise up laborers to send out into his harvest? This is what we're being called to do, church. This is what we're being tasked to do. This is what I'm asking you to pray with us as elders about. This is our job. This is our responsibility. This is what we are about. But it leads to an even bigger question. We've often talked in this church about being close-fisted with our life. And if we're close-fisted with our life, this means I'm going to hold on to these things. I'm going to make an idol out of these things. I'm going to hide these things from God. These things are mine. These are my preference. I'm going to control these things or seemingly control these things. Or will you be open-handed with God? Will you come before God and you say, my entire life, everything that I have, it's yours. You can have it. As we think about this, how open-handed are you with your life? What if you're the one that God is raising up to send out into the harvest or to send out to your neighborhood or to send out to your work, your school, your family, or even to send out to the nations so that you might make much of God in another place so that God, so that people might come to know the Lord of the harvest. And my question for you church is exactly that. Is God raising some of you up to be sent? And my prayer and my hope and my dream is the answer to that question is yes, he definitely is. You may not know it yet, but God may have something incredible in store for you. He may take you on a journey that you never dreamed possible. That's just the God we serve, and I thank him for that. Missions is a beautiful endeavor. and May we as a church pursue that with open hands. Let's pray. God, I thank you for this day. I thank you for this beautiful church. I thank you for these people. I thank you for a church that desires to obey you and follow you and do whatever you've asked of us. And you have most certainly asked us to take your gospel to the ends of this earth, beginning here, and to make disciples. And Lord, as a church, I pray that we would take that command seriously, and that we would pursue that with all of our heart and our might. I pray that as a people, we would be a praying people. I pray that we would pray earnestly that you would raise up people. And I pray that you would raise up people here in Citizens Church. I pray that you would make that happen in only a way that you can. I thank you for being so awesome. I thank you for being so good. And I pray all these things in the name of your precious son, Jesus Christ. Amen.